Glocal, podcast on locally incubated global technology powerhouses. In terms of customers, we got more than, you know, about 5,000 customers in total. We are focusing a lot of larger accounts, you know, ranging from uh, simply like $50,000 to, you know, something like $2 million contracts. This is Enes. I'm still serving at the Turkish military, so if you've been emailing me or providing any feedback on the episodes, I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. Um, as always, it's very, very appreciated. Nesparker team had great experience and expertise in web application security, but they didn't want to focus on enterprise from day one, given the very long sales cycle. They grew substantially in SME and then pivoted towards enterprise and are currently crashing with huge technology companies. Ferruh and the team bootstrapped for close to a decade and then raised $40 million from Turnover Capital. Let's listen to his words. Hello, Ferruh. How are you? I'm fine, Yanis. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks as well. Are you currently in London? I'm just outside of London, just about 45 minutes outside of it. Cool. Is the weather nice? Um, what I hate about London was winter weather sucks, but then again, the whole world sucks in terms of weather. But in summer, the whole world is really sunny and people are swimming. But London, it's rainy and cloudy. Is it good weather right now? Uh, it's actually quite nice in the last couple of days. So what is interesting about London overall in the UK, um, the winter mostly sucks and the rest of the year mostly sucks as well, very bad. But when it comes summer, so you got like this very, very nice four weeks of summer, British summer, and that's just lovely. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right about. So we are just getting <laughs> into that territory and it's just the early days of it. So quite nice here. Oh, that's good to know. So you have to be there in that four weeks. I'll try to make it this time. That's it. Yeah. But, you know, it gets tricky, right? Sometimes you don't know when it's coming up, <laughs> but definitely aim for it. Perfect. Um, Let's get on to it. So what I want to ask you first is, can you tell us in really simple and stupid terms what NetSparker does? So what NetSparker does is it finds vulnerabilities in web applications and web services completely automatically. So that's the simplest way to put it. I know that you guys have like a web vulnerability scanner, you have an online security scanner, you have a penetration testing module, you have secure SDLS, asset discovery, PCI compliance. I mean, these are a lot of features. What's the core value proposition? What's the, what's the one reason why um, your customers buy NetSparker? I think it's very straightforward. You want to find the ways that you can get hacked and you want to prevent and you want to fix those vulnerabilities before someone else exploits and, and hack you. So the core value is NetSparker will find vulnerabilities before the attackers and all those benefits and everything is around building a very secure uh, web application process. So you don't expose your websites to the world and you find all those vulnerabilities before kind of going public and always stay on top of that. Previously, you worked at uh, really large organizations, but also some new age technology companies before starting NetSparker. Um, what sparked you to start a web application security business in the first place? You know, I always wanted to start my own company. I, I did try a couple of times before and failed, and they were more like consultancy service kind of companies. So I was working as a penetration tester for a long time. And as a penetration tester who has been focusing on web application security, what happened is I found it 
the tools that helps me to do my job every day were lacking. Were lacking in terms of quality. They were missing vulnerabilities. They were reporting false positives. So, you know, I always thought that this could have been done better. So that was kind of the trigger for me every day using products and keep telling myself this is just not good enough you know this can be way better but you started in the uk i mean you were in turkey before but then you moved to london in 2006 um and then in 2009 you started your business you never targeted turkey turkey was never in your scope as a target market why was that right because on those years when i actually moved out from turkey one of the triggers was um there was no security industry to speak of particularly in terms of web application security so it wasn't the market wasn't ready for it there were no buyers etc etc so when i started this obviously we did sell in turkey because i knew so many people i knew almost like everyone in the market at the time so it was very easy to reach out to friends to give them a demo hey guys you know take a look at this but at the end of the day for market point of view in the marketing and everything it was almost 90% north america where the actual you know the industry is mature enough and investing into you know web security even at the point of 2009 so you're based in london but you tried to sell to north america from day one how tough was that process why didn't you ever target europe or did you actually target europe i mean i think i got to explain what targeting means so when we started we didn't have a sales team we didn't have a marketing team i'm coming from a very very technical background and i didn't have a good understanding of sales or marketing per that matter so when i say targeting we actually for years didn't really do anything other than i personally going around talking in conferences uh, reaching out friends reaching out people on twitter reaching out to the company so it was like kind of one man show in terms of marketing and sales operation and personally closing deals so that's how we grew up for so many years to be honest it's embarrassing to say today i think for about 3 4 years we had no marketing or sales unit at all so it was just me targeting uh but i think uh so you know just to frame the question better maybe or explain you the situation better but the focus was still north america in terms of because we knew it was so hard to sell in turkey or europe just just by itself is just so smaller than north america in security market and it still is the same quite funny enough like even today biggest industry you know biggest buyer in terms of security is uh by a large margin is us wow that's 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 actually an interesting insight because europe you would say with gdpr and all the compliance and emphasis on security you would think it would be a big market given that there are 40 countries but that's not the case i guess what's your in- i mean go ahead so don't get me wrong it it's still big but if you are focusing it's so much hard to focus on a a market like europe so you have to split the world into say hey english speaking territories where i can do stuff without any local understanding of the culture or the language and when you do that the world becomes a much smaller space other side of the us so if you got limited resources and if you're going to focus in one market us is just easiest market that you can get into with a lot of high return and right now yes we afford to do global operation but it would have been a very bad thing to try early on because how hard to reach out to that market and be successful at those market with 
no English and the cultural knowledge or the local uh, reseller or the channel support. Makes sense. I mean, for all of our companies that are going for more immature markets, uh, where they need a lot of early adapters who are going to become the first buyers of the product, we say US is the best market because like just what you've said, it's a big unified market, same culture, same language, um, biggest enterprise technology budgets, and of course, a bunch of early adapters, much more than so a place like Europe. Um, what I want to ask you is like a lot of the case when our companies go to US prematurely, they see a lot of competition. Whereas when they go to Europe or Middle East or even Southeast Asia, the competition, especially in enterprise software, is much lower. Who are your bigger competitors uh, in the landscape currently? And how was it like back in 2009? Right, right. That's actually, I think it's quite interesting about us too, right? So when we started in 2009, um, the competition was quite heavy. So we had three big competitors and a couple of other small ones, but we had very clear winners like HP, IBM, and then uh, we got a couple of, I think one only big independent company. So Acunetics, right? So we ended up in a marketplace where we are fighting against Behemoth, right? You know, you got IBM, you got HP, and we actually run into the uh, very famous old saying, um, no one fired by buying IBM. And that, <laughs> yeah, I hate that. Right? I'm, I'm sure you did. And it's such a funny thing to run into it in 2009, 2010, even going up to like up until I think 2014. This was a big challenge for us. And don't get wrong. I mean, we still get into the same discussion now and then, but obviously significantly rarely now we are a decade old company. Uh, but when we started, so it was kind of funny, like, you know, this guy who grew up in the suburbs of Istanbul uh, starts a company uh, with about uh, angel investment of, I think, something in the range of like $5,100,000, right? It was a very low number. And picking a fight against IBM and HP. So that was literally our situation. So uh, that was a very, very uh, hard battlefield, but we got our advantages like many other startups, being agile, being nimble. And on top of that, uh, we were very aggressively priced so we can get into. We even released a free version so, you know, we can tackle the competition better and all that. But yeah, that was that was the situation. Mm -hmm. And fast forward 10 years, who are some of the other newcomers or the newly immersed companies that are competing with you? I'm not talking about the IBMs of the world, but more like new age technology startups, um, just like how much you've raised. It's funny, actually, and, and I keep saying this. In the last 10 years, we have only seen one good competitor came out as a new upcoming competition. And they are also playing in a slightly different field, so it doesn't affect us much. Which is, which is quite interesting if you think about it. Like in 10 years, no new competition. I think there are you know, a couple of reasons for it. One, I believe the technical threshold of entrance in the market. So think about antivirus. I think it's a very relevant technology and more you know, familiar to possibly so many listeners as well, easier to understand. Do you want an antivirus that finds only 80% of the viruses? Like, I, can you be okay with it? Of course not. Or are you going to be like, hey, I want 100% or 99% or whatever? So 
that is a similar situation with us. I believe due mm. to the technical challenge of entrance to the market, as well as the buyer decision of, hey, I'm not going to buy something that finds only some vulnerabilities. So I need to buy something quite complete. So combination of that, I think made our market so hard to get into. So pretty much every other competition either, either died out, never find their footing, never find to you know, go to market strategy right, or they are still struggling to today. Which is, you know, being a blessing for us, to be honest, because no one else is coming up and all the old guys and the dinosaurs all dying out on this market is we are, you know, kind of emerging as a leader. I get it. I mean, the fact that customers expect so much from this product actually sets the barrier so high that it becomes your kind of technology defensibility or your entry barrier, as to say. Um, What I want to ask you is, as organizations start to optimize more for speed rather than security, there's much and much more vulnerabilities coming out. And that's why all these scanners like dynamic or static testing scanners have emerged over the past five to 10 years because people want to push more continuously and people want to update their software much more faster. And of course, then they're open to vulnerabilities. Um, how do you think the adoption there is? Do you think the adoption of dynamic and static testing tools also enable adoption of a product like NetSparker? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, we have a dynamic application security scanner. And um, the understanding of, to be honest, the biggest driver in what we see in the larger adoption is the emergence of web technologies overall. So in 10 years, compared to what we started, when we started, if we had a customer or if we had a company that we're talking who says us, I've got like 100 websites, we would be like, wow, they have 100 websites, such a big company. And today, medium-sized companies have like 500 websites. Our enterprise customers ranging from 1,000 to 20, 30,000 websites. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, That's huge. Just huge. And like, maybe you think like, what kind of company can have 30,000 websites? But think about all the microservices, websites, web services, mobile backends, and on top of that, internal websites, external websites, off-the-shelf products hosted by you. So the scope is actually way larger than that immediately looks like. And I think that's the biggest driver. But obviously with that, everyone realized they need automation. Back in the day when we started, we would actually have customers, and we still do have very small customers like that, who would tell us, hey, I don't need NetSparker anymore because I've got two websites and I'm comfortable pen testing manually. So yeah, it's going to take me two weeks, but you know, I'm a small company. I'm not going to spend $5,000 on it. So I'm going to spend two weeks rather than you know $5,000. And I believe I'm going to be doing okay job. So, and that's an argument that's kind of fine. But obviously, if you are slightly bigger, automation is a must. And that drives a lot of adoption of, um, you know, secure automation tools, right? Static analysis, dynamic analysis, and various other, like the secure software development lifecycle process right now, got almost four or five points of security tools in that chain to get that right. So yeah, and it's growing day by day. Oh, definitely. It's it's a great market. It's a super important market because, you know, we're never going to end up at a point to say, hey, we don't need security anymore. Let's say we don't need web applications or web services or APIs, web APIs anymore. So as long as these are not changing, this market is just going to grow like as simple as that. And I guess you're not targeting really small customers anyways. When I look into your website, I see 
big customers like Allianz, ING Bank, Cisco, and Microsoft. Can you tell us a bit about your current traction? Uh, where do you stand? Either that's number of customers, revenue, if you can disclose, or anything in that matter. Right, right. I mean, give you a little bit of history on when we started, we were focusing a lot of security consultants, small companies, medium-sized companies, and all that. Uh, but around 2015, uh, 14, 15, I've seen the trend of these website numbers because working on this field, and I've been working on web security since 2002, right? That's the first time I've actually released a, a you know, advisor, security advisor. I started to focus on web application security, finding vulnerabilities, zero days, etc. So knowing the market so well and later on founding the company and working with our customers, I've seen the trend of, hey, we're going to end up like with thousands of websites, which also coincided with the fact that the cloud competing getting higher and all that. So we focused on building a scalable model, focusing and targeting on enterprises without touching our current product. So unlike many other companies who says, hey, now I'm going to shift to enterprise, we say, look, I'm happy with medium and small companies. I don't want to touch that revenue. And I don't know whether you knew this, but since 2009, we are actually charging like a software as a service, yeah, despite of the it. fact the product is an on-premise. Yeah, I saw it on your website. When you go to pricing, it's a typical SaaS-like pricing, depending on the number of uh, web apps or the websites that a company has. Coming back to my question, can you disclose anything about your current track? So I can give you a couple of numbers, maybe not the, you know, uh, some revenue numbers, but to give Whatever you an you idea. Can disclose. Yeah, like, you know, in terms of customers, we got more than, you know, about 5,000 customers in total. And it's heavily on enterprise side that since we did the shift from 2015. So that's where we retained all the small customers. So we got a lot of small accounts still with us. But now we are focusing a lot of larger accounts, you know, ranging from uh, simply like $50,000 to, you know, something like $2 million contracts. So which is what we have been focusing in the last two or three years. And obviously it takes a while to get into that enterprise game with your all business operation and everything. So we started about three years ago after the product is built in, in between. And we finally believe like we are at the right place and the next year should be even better in terms of that. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you too. I mean, given that you're targeting enterprise, um, A, the sales cycles should be very long. B, to even get to the actual decision maker takes a really long time, especially since this is um, security matters. And then lastly, that you have to use resellers or some onboarding partners to do all this at scale. How's your sales strategy? How What's a typical sales cycle for a product like NetSparker? And do you have any resellers or a reseller network that you incentivize to sell for you? So the sales cycle in enterprise typically takes six months and it can be longer in government. It's easily one year. And we even see some crazy deals takes like one and a half year. Um, so that was actually a big challenge. But as I said, our advantage was our original revenue stream was continuing while we were building to and investing into enterprise. So one or two years, so kind of 16 and 17 were a little bit challenging because we are spending a lot of on enterprise, but we are not getting any revenue almost, so very low amount of revenue because, you know, the product is new, the process is new and all that. So that's changed. So to answer your question, in channel, we don't use much channel. We got some channel operation, right? But it's not much and it's generally 
more transactional rather than enterprise. Our enterprise is mostly direct sales. And we got a direct sales operation team uh, in pretty much all time zones right now, but mostly focusing on English speaking territories. And again, North America is the biggest driver of these enterprise deals. The very, very same idea. It's not that there aren't enterprises in other sides of the world. It's just the easiest to target when you first started it because, you know, it's such a, we are so familiar with the market and we got an office in Texas, Austin, so that makes life easier. I mean, whenever it's a very complicated product, especially in the security space, like NetSparker, I'm sure that uh, channel partnerships don't work, meaning they cannot actually make the sales themselves. What they can do is actually lead gen. As long as they can have your sales team get a meeting with the decision maker in an enterprise, that's good enough. And then your team has to has to kind of lead the conversation and close the deal. Uh, because that's what I've seen so far uh, in the space. Another that's question a very, that... very good point. Just one, one little piece on that is um, it's actually where we want to get as well, but it's actually way more challenging than it looks. And I see a lot of you know, startups or, you know, medium-sized companies thinking, hey, I'm just going to get into channel and channel going to make me money. And pretty much like you say, it doesn't work like that. And getting lead gen from channel is a very challenging, painful journey. We ourselves haven't completed yet. <laughs> Something <laughs> we've been working on. And I don't see many medium-sized companies, you know, or late-stage startups and stuff being successful at that. I would suggest to set everyone's to their expectations when they think channel is just magic and they're just going to lead channel sell their product. Yeah, I would say like um, onboarding a right channel partner is as hard as closing 10 banks at the same time. It's much easier to close 10 banks as a customer at the same time than actually finding a right channel partner who would continue to sell your product and scale the company for you. It's really tough. Um, another question that popped up is, I see in the security space, some companies go to become the best of breed. They want to become the best in whatever specific product or industry thereafter, or product, some products are more towards orchestration and automation. And when I look into NetSparker on your website, I see a lot of um, emphasis on how you automate the workflow for web app security. Which one would you put yourself in? Do you think you're rather best of breed or you're rather an orchestration automation tool that would sit in the middle in the future? and be integrated with all the other scanner and security service providers? We actually have a very simple motto or, you know, uh, the way we put ourselves. We are a web application security first company. So all the other big security companies doing orchestration or, you know, taking a lot of uh, things on their plate and trying to do that. They are network security companies. They are, they are old school, they are dinosaurs. They are what it was the world before. Doesn't matter how you put it, right? Uh, we are looking at the world is web, world is cloud, world is, you know, mobile. So we are a web application security first company. So with that in mind, what we do, we are best in the market when it comes to, hey, we find everything. And on top of that, we prove everything. And that is something unique to us. No one else in the market can do that. It's a unique technology, which leads us. Now our solution can be automated, whereas any other solution cannot be automated because they might be reporting false positives. So just to very quickly explain this to you, uh, imagine the system automatically finds vulnerabilities and sends to them, sends those vulnerabilities to developers. But imagine out of 10 vulnerabilities, two of them are false positives. 
So when developers end up with this false positive, it gets challenging. Either stop believing in the solution that automation doesn't work because signal noise ratio is not that good enough, or it, it gets worse, they start to ignore, etc. So what we do at core, the best, finding and automating, right? But on top of that, we believe in the process should work, which means the workflow, backtracking tools, integration with the development tools, etc. So that's kind of our approach to that. For example, tomorrow we can say, hey, we do static source code scanning as well because it's our core business. We want to do web application security, right? And we will aim for the best. But let's say the next day we said we do network security. We will know for a fact our network security solution might not be as good as, you know, network security first company. And we accept that. So our focus is always, say hey, we will deliver the best web application security tool. And on top of that, we will add on other good products, other good processes to make this process better, but not necessarily challenge other companies in their core business, kind of. Makes perfect sense. And as a company that's going towards enterprise more and more, um, your product was always on-premise and you still don't have a cloud product. Are you planning to roll out a cloud product anytime soon? We actually have a cloud solution. So right now what we have... Oh, you do? I didn't know that. Yeah, yes, we do. Uh, so we launched it about, I think, three years ago. Uh, adoption is oh, a little bit slow on the enterprise market because security market is generally want to keep everything private. However, I think just because now everything is on the cloud, we have seen more and more bigger companies are happy to just use our cloud solution as well. Interesting. And what's the total market size uh, for web application security? Uh, what do you think the market size is right now? And what do you think the market size would be in, say, five or ten years? Right. That's a very tough question. Um, I've actually looked it up this before and there are a couple of research. And I think they were, especially on the dynamic application testing, I think they were dynamic and static, they were guessing about not much, like a couple of billions worldwide, you know, uh, smaller than I thought. But again, I've never seen actually, let's say, credible enough researchers say, what's the market size? And I cannot tell you really, I have no idea. <laughs> In terms of any realistic number, I don't know it. I think you guys have some sort of a good portion out of that couple billion, even right now. That is correct. On the on the piece that we are doing, dynamic testing, definitely leading it. And you still have your technology team in Turkey. And what I see is you're hiring more and more people in Turkey. But then your management is in London and you have sales personnel all around the globe, I guess. Can you compare different regions from a talent perspective? Uh, what kind of talent uh, is easier to find and, of course, more cost effective in Turkey? And then how hard is it to find salespeople who can actually sell a complex security product around the globe. Is it really tough to find? Yeah, sorry, that's a, that's actually a great question and something we have been struggling since the inception of the company. So Turkey, when it comes to R&D, it's fantastic, it's unbelievably good. So you don't only have good raw talent, and I'm gonna explain raw a little bit, because generally what you get is in Turkey is the raw talent, not refined talent. And then you also get very competitive salaries in Turkey. Having said that, um, because we are being in Europe as well as Turkey and US, actually Turkey R&D um, salaries are right now quite competing with Europe. 
so which is which is weird uh, in the last couple of years it wasn't like this but it is now it's quite like that but when it comes to marketing and we still that's why we retain all our R&D in Turkey almost exclusively just because of that because we can find people we can train them we can find uh, good people and the salaries we can pay very competitive salaries without worrying like if you were to establish a very similar R&D team in somewhere like San Francisco i think we would have raised like two three rounds or something just to sustain that so Turkey, that's the case. When it comes to the marketing and business people, so marketing, sales, biz dev, whatever, all of that, you got no experience whatsoever in Turkey. It's such a hard job to find anyone with good product experience, with um, experience in a similar company. And the culture is different. And it's somehow, I don't know whether we failed to do it, but we never managed to get a footing in Turkey in terms of hiring any of those positions. We do employ salespeople in Turkey, right? But unfortunately, we don't have any sales managers or marketing managers or anything like that in Turkey in terms of any of those business positions. We just never managed to find those people, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the ecosystem doesn't have the experience to kind of educate people to be a good sales or biz dev manager unfortunately that's a problem we see across our portfolio as well and you i mean you raised some angel funding as you've said previously 50 or 100k initially 10 years ago and then you bootstrapped uh, with like zero funding for a very long time and then you raised 40 million dollars from uh turn river capital can you tell me how that process was i mean after bootstrapping for a very long time how tough was it to fundraise with a security company that bases almost all of its R&D in Turkey? And why did you decide to go down that route in the first place? Right, right. So, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. So, after 10 years or let's say 9 years into this business, I felt like I was in a crossroads, right? And I actually written a document uh shared with my partners at the time. And in the document, just trying to put my thoughts into in a refined manner, I realized like, okay, if you have to make a decision and the decisions in front of me are very challenging. One, we can keep doing what we have been doing, right? Which is an organic, relatively good growth, but becoming more and more challenging. And part of the challenge was me personally lacking a lot of enterprise or big experience, big company kind of, big startup, big, you know, uh, new initiative experience on the business and marketing. So I didn't trust myself to take this company to be, you know, 100, 200, 300 million revenue kind of company, right? Like, I'm like, I don't see that. So I need to make a decision. I do, I'm going to say I'm never going to that big because I don't see how I'm ever going to do that. Uh, or... I'm gonna say I need to raise, you know. And when I said raise, I'm not interested in money. We actually had a lot of cash in the bank. So it wasn't about the money particularly. Obviously, we didn't have 40 million cash in the bank, uh, but it wasn't the the main driver. Main (laughs) motivation was I need smart money. I don't only need someone who can give me money, but I need someone who can give me support and not just getting into my board meeting and tells me, hey, do this, do that, do that, and just leaves before another month or another three months. But I was after, hey, 
Can you give me the connections? Can you give me the strategy? Can you give me the operational support to execute that strategy? And that's where actually, and this was my thoughts. Having said that, I've, I've looked up a little bit, but I was quite unsuccessful in terms of finding this magical mix, you know. So I was almost giving up. And I actually, to be honest with you, half-heartedly tried that because I despised the fundraising process. Yeah, everyone just, hates fundraising. fundraising. Everyone, I guess, right? It's the a worst. necessary evil. Uh, but obviously, I had options. I had options like, you know what? Maybe it's better to stay kind of smaller. Not that small. <laughs> we were big enough. But, you know, maybe I, I don't need to be that ambitious, kind of. In, in the midst of all of this, I started to talk with Turn River, and it took almost like two years before we come to an agreement, which a lot of back and forths, right? But that's where the, this gets interesting. Turn River is kind of a different investor. What they have is a lot of operational backing. So... They're not only telling you what you need to be doing, they actually, to give you an idea, they, you know, I think when we first started, there were almost like five people, almost full-time basis, working on our company from Turn River. So, and all of these people are like rock stars. They are coming from LinkedIn, they are coming from Google, they are coming from Zendesk, marketing, sales, strategy, all that. So combination of that, then with them, we did a lot of things like we started the U.S. office, which I think right now we are about 30 people and we are moving to a bigger place uh, in like in a very short amount of a time span. And all of this execution was the help with the investors. So that's kind of what made that possible. And from my end, to be honest, I think I've only had a handful of meetings with potential investors, um, maybe about five before I kind of give up. And only met with Turnover because they out, you know, they reached out to us and kind of very cold introduction and we started to talk. Interesting. That's a good good story of how you were profitable. You had a lot of cash, but to be able to take the company to the next level, you realize that you either get good funding and all the operational support with it, or you're never going to shoot for that big. You're probably never going to be a couple hundred million dollar revenue business. But again, you will be big enough. You will be a big enough player. Uh, potentially to be acquired by even a bigger player that might emerge which brings me to my last question actually if someone is to buy you who would that be from a product perspective from a customer base perspective i mean you have thousands of customers and from a data perspective your product and netspark as a company can be synergetic to a lot of different players who do you think is a potential candidate to buy netsparker and when do you think that would be what's your kind of timeline to exiting the company if mm -hmm. you have one. Mm -hmm. I think that's changed a lot over the years. And back in the day, I, I was thinking about maybe network security companies who want to, you know, keep up to date with the times. But I think we have gotten so bigger that like network security companies possibly is just not going to be good enough fit anymore. So right now, when I look at it, I see big players like Amazon, Google kind of, who is invested a lot in, in the cloud, in the security, in the web application security and want to uh, synergize in their offering. Uh, I don't have any particular names in my head, yeah, to be honest, but that's what I am seeing, like that kind of big cloud providers, big, uh, big organizations. But you never know this kind of stuff, obviously. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining the Glocal Podcast, Vera. It was an honor to have you here. Hey, you are welcome. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. Cheers. <laughs> Application security space has been growing tremendously over the past years, and I think this trend will continue. 
And obviously, Netsparker is one of the best position players out there. I think this market will grow to 5x, maybe even 10x or what it is right now in a decade or so. Our next episode, coming next Monday, will be SaaSPass, where we will discuss some highly technical stuff on identity and access management. As previously mentioned, I am still serving at the Turkish military, so if you've been emailing me or providing feedback, I'll get back to you in a couple weeks. As always, you can reach us on our website, theglocal.co, you can reach us on Instagram at theglocalpodcast, and you can reach me personally on Twitter at Enes Stay tuned.